0: I kind of have this two-word mantra of what's needed in order to be more competitive and to be more successful, which is more, better. We need more of it. So we need more people in this pro-democracy space, and it needs to be better and more effective.
1: Hello, this is The Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Mindy Finn, the founder of Citizen Data, a company that provides research, data, and guidance to nonpartisan pro-democracy organizations. Mindy has quite a history in politics as a pioneer in digital campaigning on the Republican side, but she broke with her party over Trump and even ran as a third party vice presidential candidate for Evan McMullen in 2016. Mindy brings a valuable perspective with a lot of lessons for political entrepreneurs interested in helping our democracy. You should listen. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Mindy Finn of Citizen Data. Mindy, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography?
0: Sure. So I'm Mindy Finn. I currently lead a social enterprise. It's for-profit called Citizen Data. I have worked in kind of the intersection of media, politics, data, and technology for the last 20 plus years, which sounds a little strange to say out loud because I still feel like I'm 25. I did start young. I had sort of this really drive towards civic service and kind of a high dose of patriotism, as you could say, really interested in news and current events and campaigns as a young person. But I actually went into college as a math major, mostly because I had always excelled at math in school. And it was kind of like, this is a thing I'm good at. I might as well go into it. It was like a little early to have... The capacity to kind of advise me that there was more I could do with that than just being an actuary, because I've also focused on statistics. I wish someone would have maybe, in hindsight, geared me towards computer science, because I would probably have a bigger bank account right now. But it kind of felt like not the right space for me because I was more social and I was more interested in kind of history and current events as well. And so I ended up starting as a math major and after a journey through a couple different options, ending as a journalism major with an intent that I would go to law school. And I did a journalism internship in DC, my senior year of college, that was mostly for grad students. But there were a few of us that were undergrads, where we were assigned to be the congressional correspondent for a newspaper in New England, because I went to Boston University. So they hooked us up with the New England newspapers. As well as an internship and a specialization. So, it was something we might be interested in, whether that was broadcast, radio, print, et cetera. And it turned out that my first day kind of on the job, so to speak, covering Congress for my newspaper, I'd been in DC for maybe less than a week as part of the program. It was like a study abroad semester in DC. My first day on the job was 9 11 and it was September 11th, 2001. And so I was really thrown in the deep end of journalism and in this position where I was 20 years old. And kind of the idea around the program was sure, let's put these young 20 somethings, let's give them this opportunity. But it was coming out of the 2000 election. And it was kind of like people are burned out on politics. And there wasn't that much going on. I mean, Bush was coming in with this domestic agenda. And they were like, this is back of a section stuff. I mean, this is back when newspapers were still really important, the actual paper. And so they're like, what you write will be back of A section, maybe beginning of B section type of material. And instead, within a couple hours of my first real day, you know, where I had been worried I would even have any story to pitch, I was on the phone with members of Congress who were, as they were evacuating the Capitol. And everything that I wrote pretty much for the entire semester was on the front page of this midsize newspaper that I was writing for the, the Waterbury Republican American, which was uh, Joe Lieberman's hometown and he had just been the VP nominee for Al Gore, so he had this elevated presence. So anyway, I got this amazing, I mean it was harrowing times, of course, with this incredible experience in DC and what it confirmed for me. I didn't really want to pursue journalism. like I was interested in it, but partially I was told at the time, again, a little before my time, or before it had it been a few years later, it might be different. But I was told, you know, you're going to really have to cut your teeth, writing obituaries and covering fires and school board meetings, and you can't ever have an opinion. And I felt kind of coming out of 9-11 in particular, this real drive to be on the front lines of making change happen, as opposed to just covering what was happening. And so I had to go back and finish school for a few months. And then I literally just moved to DC without a job and kind of knocked doors until I got a job on on Capitol Hill working in Congress. I'll fast forward a bit. How did I get into kind of digital and data? I had had some journalism internships both in DC and in Boston where I was given kind of the new media responsibilities, meaning the website and having to customize content and writing custom content or editing graphics. And I had to learn some coding in order to do it because the technology was was really nascent at the time and premature. And so I learned Photoshop and I learned coding and I learned kind of how to communicate digitally uh, kind of on the job because they just didn't have budgets to pay people to do that. So I was given that. And then when I went to work in Congress, I kind of was able to exercise those skills for my roles there and then ultimately was recruited To the Bush re-election campaign to work on what they called the E campaign at the time, but really their digital team in 2003 into 2004. And I was 22 at the time, but it really launched this career of kind of falling in love, frankly, with the opportunity to what I saw, to small d democratize politics, to get more people involved, to give them more access to information, to feel more empowered in the process ideally to improve the relationship between constituents and those who represent them, leaders who represent them. It was really this idealized version of you know the role the Internet could play and technology could play in politics, which my idealism has really changed and been worn off over the years. And I have a different, I think, deeper view and a more mature view on it. But that's what.
1: Uh, can I ask you one question about this? I take it you worked for a Republican member of Congress and then for the Bush campaign. What was the identification with that party? What was the roots of that?
0: So I did. I first was actually a paid intern for a Republican senator from Wyoming for about four months. And then I worked for a Republican House member from Texas. I had been in the college Republicans at Boston University, actually, which is not a big club, as you might imagine. I don't know that I had a strong political identity, but I grew up, my my family, though their cultural background and kind of upbringing was probably more liberal and democratic. My family had originally been from New York and then my parents had moved to Texas before I was born. I grew up there in a suburb of Houston and the town I grew up in was pretty Republican, not like solid dark red, but red. And I remember when I was in elementary school, they did a straw poll at school for Bush 41 and Dukakis. So it was Eighty-eight. So I was in elementary school. It was something like, you know, 68% Bush. So it was a very Republican area. And then my mom, I actually grew up with just my mom from age two on, she became pretty Republican. And so used to listen to Republican talk radio and was a Bush supporter. So I, I think I was honestly just very shaped by that. I still considered myself in college pretty moderate, like I was moderate on a lot of issues, but had an identification with the Republican Party.
1: So, how was that Bush reelect for you? Who'd you meet there? What'd you do?
0: Yeah, so, well, again, I got hired to be a uh, part of this very small kind of new team. They called the e campaign. When I say small, like I think I was like the fourth person hired onto it. It ended up being really only about nine, I would say, at the end. Then there was kind of this auxiliary related team that helped staff these like house parties that we were helping organize online that maybe doubled the team, but it was really small relative to the other teams. We started out as part of the communications department and there was the declaration of independence of sorts outside of that department in the early months after I joined. I mean, it was an incredible experience. I think as presidential campaigns could be like uh, working, you know, 80 hours, 80 plus hours, 90 hours a week. Sometimes seven days a week. I remember I started and we were said, oh, like you might have to start weekend, like coming in on Saturdays in a couple months. And like the next weekend, they're like, nope, now you have to start coming in Saturdays. And Pretty soon it was seven days a week. But I, the opportunity that I had to do things that uh, were incredible. Like I was, I both was coding the website sometimes, determining graphics that would be on the website, Writing, I managed our email program, and we had this like was early days of targeted email marketing within campaigns, and so I had to code each email. I mean, we had kind of custom built our own internal system for this, where I could select who it was targeting and all of that. It was built on an off the shelf system, but we had to basically build our own. So I remember there were days I might send thirty two to forty separate emails that I had to code to different audiences with different graphics, and I was helping edit them and. Had to go through this long approval process. And then also this house party program where we had people organize, you know, house parties and we'd have these national days where we'd ask everyone to kind of organize their party. And you know, the, the numbers that you're dealing with at the time, I mean, now these lists are much bigger, but we had an email list famously of six to seven million people. So I was a young person and having that kind of influence, I got to meet the president because it was a re-elect, so he was the sitting president. And it was like 10 years worth of experience in one year. And the people that I worked with, many of them, even if we haven't been in touch in years, it's kind of like we were part of a you know fraternity or sorority. I'll still hear from them. And it, we were kind of brothers and sisters in arms. And so I'm really grateful for that. But I think the thing that was uh, really formative from a career perspective was it was kind of leading edge to to be part of this digital program. I mean, when I started really throughout the campaign, there were still a lot of people on the campaign within communications, actually, who were communications staff who were very confused and thought, what was the difference between what we were doing versus the IT department that would fix their computers? We often said we were kind of the others, like the redheaded stepchildren of the campaign. But the the president understood it, and he appreciated it. We were part of this micro-targeting stuff that Karl Rowe was doing. And so anyway, I mean, a great experience. I remember when it was ending, and there was, we were interviewed about, you know, internally, they were trying to make sure people had jobs after the campaign and questioning whether we wanted to go into government versus something else. And it was just very clear to me like maybe I was just young and overly arrogant, but given the amount of responsibility I'd had, the idea of going to government just seemed like a step down. Is there a secretary position? Is there a cabinet position, you know, that I could go for? Because if not, like, I want to go into politics. And so I ended up from there going to the Republican National Committee, but really just continuing to build on and leverage this experience in digital politics that I had on on the Bush campaign into the rest of my career.
1: And uh, the next one was Romney for you, right?
0: Yeah. I mean, I helped out out of the RNC on a bunch of different campaigns. But ultimately, yes, I was... I wasn't going to join a presidential campaign for 2008. I'd kind of said I was not going to do that. I was going to do consulting, but I was recruited by several. And Romney, I guess, successfully recruited me. I was fascinated by him and that campaign and the professionalism of their operation. I ended up joining that campaign for his first presidential run and leading leading the digital team there, which at that point... It was a primary race, so it wasn't necessarily a bigger team than the Bush campaign. It was about the same size, but I led it entirely and had my own budget and all of that.
1: Would it be correct to say that the space that you had found was a good fit for you?
0: Yeah, it really was at the time. Campaigns are, as you know, grueling, and they're not really, uh, I think, unless we we're kind of a special kind of person. It's it's hard to square them with leading kind of a balanced life. For my first experience, and I had done some volunteer work, but my first experience on the Bush campaign was a little bit different because it was a reelect. It was a general election. There wasn't a primary. We knew how long it was going to be. There was plenty of money. There wasn't an issue of kind of the budget uncertainty. I mean, they still had to raise the money and try to run a really tight operation, but it had a massive budget. And, um, And so the Romney campaign was a a bit different. Obviously, it was a primary. So it was really unpredictable how long it would go on to some extent. I mean, we knew we would go through the first couple of primaries and hoped we would go beyond that. And it was a very competitive primary. And he had more money than some. That was actually one of his strengths of the campaign was a fundraising ability, but still uncertainty around fundraising because fundraising is tied to viability. And that could kind of change day to day based on what polls were showing, etc. And so it was a good fit, but it's a grueling life that I kind of realized after the Romney campaign was not something I wanted to just kind of continue to do, at least by going and staffing a campaign again. Tell me about
1: Engage quickly.
0: Yeah. So after the Romney campaign, Patrick Ruffini, who had been a colleague of mine on the Bush campaign, in fact, I had been hired to really be his deputy initially when I came onto the Bush campaign. Uh, so we had worked closely together. You know, he in the 2007 to the NAIT cycle had was doing digital work for Giuliani. I was doing it for Romney. And so at that point, and we had both been at the RNC. He went to the RNC after I was there to lead the digital department. And so we were kind of the few people on the Republican side to have this level of presidential and. National Political Committee of Digital Experience, he had been doing some consulting already on his own, and he approached me about launching a firm together and, and essentially scaling out the experience and expertise we had to the broader ecosystem of Republican campaigns, but also trade associations, et cetera. And there were obviously some consulting firms at the time, but few who were doing that. who uh, could offer kind of a soup to nuts digital consulting for politics and in the republican side it was very much a an open market. And so we decided to launch Engage after I left the Romney campaign which ended in February of 2008 after he did not do as well in the primaries as hoped and dropped out of the race. And we did it to bring kind of best in class digital capacity and consulting to the republican political market and it was very successful pretty quickly over a bunch of years and expanded into corporate clients. And we built some of our own technology. And we had a podcast back then when like no one was doing podcasts about digital politics. And that was good. We worked really hard and we did really well. And we kind of worked with the who's who of Republican clientele and such. I found though, for me, I don't know, I kind of have this pattern through my career of trying to get out of politics on multiple occasions. And then getting sucked back in. And so leaving Engage was my, my first effort to say, I actually don't know that I want to work on campaigns for the rest of my career, and I would like to go a different way. And a big reason for that actually was that there was so much of the success of politics and campaigns was based on ramping up public fear, based on negativity, and based on how effectively could you tear down your opponent. And it just didn't really feel good to my soul. And so that was actually, it was like, yeah, I was doing well financially and I was proud of what we did with the company. And I'm most proud of the people that I trained up who I see go on and have great careers, but it just didn't feel good to my soul. So I ended up selling my part of the company to to Patrick after a few years.
1: And did you go to Twitter?
0: I did, that wasn't my plan. So like I said, getting sucked back in. I was really going to go some do something else. I had a runway to be able to figure that out. And I was exploring a number of things. And then I was recruited to Twitter. And I kind of decided, both for professional and personal reasons, realized I was going to have my first child, to go there. I mean, Twitter was had this angelic ring around it at the time as the social media platform that was democratizing Bringing just like creating this great had this great democratizing power across the world. I mean, it was kind of post Arab Spring and these times where all these revolutionaries in these different countries under these oppressive rule were able to use Twitter to organize against oppression. And there was these news events like the plane crash in the Hudson that you know if not for Twitter, these people wouldn't have been saved. There was this halo kind of effect around Twitter, and it was still in startup mode. And I. I'd been an early adopter and I'd also been an advocate for politicians to use Twitter and train them on it. And it was really appealing to to go there and to to try that out as they were actually trying to become revenue generating, which, of course, they still struggle with. And so I, I agreed to go and was there for a couple of years.
1: What was the key thing you think you learned there?
0: I learned a lot about startup technology companies and kind of the growing pains that they go through. But also there was actually a lot of positives to learn from things they did well at that time in terms of how they scaled out teams and globally and the goals that they set. We had this goal internally among my team to make the 2012 election, the quote unquote Twitter election, you know, from kind of like a PR perspective. And we're pretty successful at that. Just sort of helping generate or make these moments happen where Twitter was really instrumental to that election. Obviously the main campaigns were using it in in big ways and a big win for us was at the Republican convention that the hashtag for Romney Ryan was all over the convention. They kind of built that into their stagecraft. But I also, it was really a, a foreshadowing and a front row seat to the problems that you know are plaguing media and politics today. Even Twitter, who had this very lofty, I think, really ambition around. Um, I mean, it started out as, as kind of like a, a first responder crisis platform like, how do you communicate when there's crises on the ground? But it, it had this kind of lofty an, ambition of truly like giving voice to the masses and, and helping um, give everybody a, a voice to, to have a say. And it's just incredible kind of free speech democratizing. Platform. And yet, even when I was there, which in kind of the history of Twitter was early years, as they sought to generate revenue, it was clear that the company's success was really proportional to the amount of division, negativity, and dysfunction in our politics to the point where there were people internally cheering for division and dysfunction because that is what the platform needed to thrive financially. Of course, that happens in cable news and media. And that's really when it was clear, like Twitter's like any other media platform in that way. And that is the thing that turned me off the most and why I ultimately left because what drew me into politics to start with, kind of post 9-11, and to pursue this career in politics was to make a positive difference. And what drew me to Twitter was definitely to make a positive difference. And I felt like the platform was really on a path to do the opposite. And so I didn't want to be there anymore.
1: So you started another firm.
0: I did. Well, I kind of started my own firm. So I obviously had a lot of experience now, even more so, not just in political campaigns, but combining that with civic technology and startup tech. And so I just started consulting as a solo practitioner and would partner with others and had some important and big clients at the time, like Change.org and Medium, as well as more political clients, you have to make a living and do good work.
1: So tell me how you reacted to the rise of Donald Trump in the 2015-2016 scenario.
0: Like I said, I keep trying to get out of politics and getting sucked back in. So a couple years after I left Twitter, maybe a year or so, actually, I really had no plans to get involved in a, I would call it like the hard politics of the 2016 election. Hard politics is like the campaigns or the political committees. I was working on something, a nonprofit, to create more of a pipeline and support for women leaders to run for office and to hold high positions kind of in politics and government. So that was happening. But then the, the Republican National Committee reached out because the leader that they had in place to lead their what had been announced hundred million dollar digital data and tech kind of effort over four years between twenty twelve and twenty sixteen, that leader, a man by the name of Chuck DeFeo, who had been my boss actually on the Bush campaign, was leaving. And he was leaving to go to the Koch brothers organization, stand together, um, which at the time, even though they're both of those entities are, you would think, are allies, there was actually a lot of friction between the Koch brothers operation and the Republican national committee over data and like who was going to be the one primary data capacity for the 2016 presidential campaign and the outside efforts and the Republican ecosystem writ large, the Republican national committee wanted to be that. And they were kind of in competition directly with the Koch brothers operation. And so Chuck, their head person at the RNC was now going over to the Koch brothers. And so they needed someone to come in at the RNC and kind of make sure that there was continuity, at least after they raised all this money and held themselves up at having Chuck as this leader and, and running this department. And they asked me if I would come in and I would do it. And, you know, my initial instinct was no, because, again, I wasn't going to get involved in hard politics, but they twisted my arm enough Um to where I felt like, okay, it's true. There's a few people, I, you know, first of all, I'm a glutton for punishment. I think I should get it tattooed on my forehead, or at least I used to be. But partly, it's like true, there's not many people who come in and do that. And and I really did not expect Donald Trump to be the 2016 nominee. At the time, the thought was someone like Marco Rubio or Scott Walker or whatever. And even though at this point, I had already been disillusioned with the Republican Party, I at least felt semi-okay with someone like a Marco Rubio becoming a candidate. You know, we know more about him now, but it's like, he's this young Hispanic new generation of leadership in the Republican party. And it was with that, in that spirit that I agreed to come in. I said, just for like 60 to 90 days to make sure that I could kind of keep the team going and operations humming at the level that they needed to, and then help the committee find the leader who would kind of lead that capacity headed into the presidential campaign. Well, I departed to go do what I wanted to do. So I essentially was in the RNC as a senior staff member when Donald Trump was saying, you know, there was murmurs or he was saying it, like he was going to run. And they didn't believe it at first because he obviously, you know, hadn't been as serious in the past about such runs. I did my three months and I left, but I stayed on as, and they found them, you know, a leader to lead it. And then I stayed on as a consultant, kind of an outside consultant for a little bit, and I was doing my women's nonprofit thing. And through that, I got a lot of television opportunities. So I'd be on CNN and Fox and MSNBC talking about kind of the role that women's leadership was gonna play in the election, et cetera, when Trump announced kind of in that same timeline. So in the spring of of 2015, and so they knew that I had this RNC experience, this Republican experience. So they'd of course asked me about Trump. And there was obviously a lot to say about Trump's history with women. And I, I remember the first time I was asked what my thoughts were about him, and I just like unfiltered, shared what they were, which were very negative. I thought he was like an abuser and a dictator-type character and could be really quite dangerous as a candidate. And that's really what I thought, but they were pretty salacious remarks. And so that the media loves that. And so I was invited back a lot to talk about Trump and kind of became a bit of an early Never Trump voice, though ironically, I was still a consultant at the RNC, and they never told me to stop. And they at that time really didn't expect he would be the nominee, nor did they want him to be the nominee. But over time, they kind of capitulated, and so eventually, I obviously had to leave the RNC. But I it, I became this early Never Trump voice and ended up even raising some funds and joining with a few others, including Patrick Ruffini, my former business partner, to, to have a bit of a Never Trump super PAC. We called it hashtag never Trump. Some people credit me for popularizing the never Trump hashtag at that time. And then, you know, the never Trump movement was built from there. Obviously, we weren't able to stop him in the primary. It was a too little too late. He became the nominee and it reordered and disrupted our, our politics. It has disrupted it since.
1: I spent some time in 2016 and 2017 and beyond trying to figure out How bad was he going to be? It seemed a little hard to put a finger on exactly what he believed and how much he was theatrical versus just exactly what was this guy. I really didn't like him, but I think he's turned out to be way worse than I contemplated even. As you've come to see him govern, see him not accept the results of an election... And now running again on the kind of platform that he is. How do you understand this guy?
0: So I expect him to be pretty bad. Again, I I was kind of kept creating more distance from politics. So I was an advisor to this democracy fund, which is a big foundation. I remember going to their advisory board kind of summit meeting right after both. Well, actually, he won. We were there when he won the New Hampshire primary. Uh, in 2016, but then in early 2017, after he was elected and and kind of being asked in terms of a five alarm fire, like, what do you think Trump is? I think I put him between a four and a five. Like, I I thought he was pretty dangerous. Partly what's happened that I think a lot of people didn't predict is why he's so dangerous. Like the, the fact that he's able to gain so much support and have such a strong and loyal base, despite, or maybe even because of his criminality and his style and his attacks on, you know, fundamental democratic norms is the part of him that's really dangerous. And so I, I don't know that he's worse. I think there's ways that it hasn't been as bad as we might have feared. So when he kicked off his presidency with the Muslim ban, and obviously like it was all around building the wall, his court, court message was about building a wall. He certainly has not been good culturally, for race relations, there's more othering going on for minorities due to Donald Trump, I, I believe, strongly. I think the evidence shows that. But he was checked on some of like the worst things he could have done in that regard, in terms of deportations and things like that, in my mind. But it's not that he didn't want to. I mean, he was just kind of checked on those things. I think where he's been worse is on the uh, government accountability side, where it has been extremely hard to hold him accountable even being indicted. It's not clear that he we really have a strong check on him. I mean, he's running again for the presidency and he's the front runner in the primary and the general election, arguably. So in that way, I think he's he's worse because he seems to be kind of have be Teflon when it becomes to his political strength. Even though his support has softened uh from its height, I think that is what's really, really dangerous. Like the last check we really have, I mean, people are trying and it's important to have these other checks, but it seemed like the strongest check we have on him is at the ballot box and his associates and kind of his broader ecosystem has a lot of power over even how elections are run and certified and that's scary. And so, uh, yeah, I think like the last bastion of defense is at the ballot box and yet he has popular support. I mean, he could win an election outright. So that part is worse. I think some of his intentions were maybe checked more than we could have feared when he was first taking office in twenty seventeen.
1: Seems a little unlikely that the checks will work as well if he gets a second term.
0: Correct. Yeah. Exactly. That's exactly right.
1: How did you meet Evan McMullen and what's his role in your career?
0: Yeah. It's a pretty important but short timeline. So after this Never Trump super PAC I was talking about I Trump won the primary and I was connected to an effort called better for America, which was a group of people, former you know, Republicans, some of them I knew through the Bush ecosystem who were trying to work to get ballot access and identify a candidate for an alternative run to Trump. So basically a Republican ish candidate who could run as an independent candidate. And they were trying to recruit Condi Rice and Colin Powell and John McCain and all kinds of people who had high name ID and ability to raise money or had their own money and get ballot access. And that was happening kind of all the way through the convention. And so I was kind of helping that, but in a more casual way and also helping organize some of the delegates to the Republican convention who wanted to protest against Trump, essentially not vote for him at the convention. And some of them tried and they were shut down. But At the convention, we kind of met this Better for America group, and it became clear that the the effort had failed. Like, they had not identified a candidate. They had talked to all these different people, including, like, General Mattis. And I don't know how close these people actually were to running, but no one had wanted to do it. And and so that effort was going to shut down. And Evan had been kind of connected to that effort, too, but we had never met. We had a lot of mutual friends and colleagues, but had never met because he had... Come into Republican politics more recently than I did, and he would have been more on the policy side. So he decided to run. Essentially, a House member at the time who had also been thinking about running, as Evan had been telling this House member he should run, said, "Evan, well, why don't you do it?" And Evan's kind of like, "Well, maybe I will." So he decided to run, and he was able to benefit from some of this Better for America apparatus that had mostly shut down to get some ballot access and to have some staff. And I had decided, truthfully, I was like, as I said, I keep trying to get out of politics. I had this women's nonprofit. I was doing consulting for tech startups, some other projects in the works. I had been moonlighting as a never Trumper. I Said I need to like take a break, and it's like time to hang it up and just kind of focus on my my work and my family for the rest of this political cycle. And when Evan's team reached out and asked if I would kind of meet with them, and I said, "Sure, I'll, like meet with you to share what I know and help." The cause. And so I did. And then they said, you know, Evan would really like to meet you. And just as a heads up, if you're open to that. And I said, sure. And they said, as a heads up, he might ask you to play Jill Stein in debate prep. There's going to likely be this town hall debate with third party candidates on CNN and he wants to prep. And so, you know, he's going to might ask you that. So, okay. So we end up doing a call, not meeting on a Sunday. I'll never forget. And at this point, it is September. So it is September of 2016. He had been in the race for a few weeks because he got in very late and maybe a month he'd been in. And he had we have this call and it's like he's asking me all these questions about my personal background and my positions on issues and any skeletons in my closet and that kind of thing. And then this whole time, I thought he was kind of vetting me to play Jill Stein in debate prep, which, you know, whatever. And then at the end, he said... You know, my team said there might be something that I would ask you. You know, I told you that. And and so I'd like to ask you, would you consider being my running mate? And I, you know, kind of nearly hit the floor. It was shocking. It was shocking to be asked this. And I didn't have a lot of time to really think about it because he, he needed a running mate or else like the campaign would probably shut down. And he was considering a few other people. And so actually within like an hour and a half, I decided to say yes, though my biggest consideration, I had two reasons that I was hesitant. One was I thought there was a chance that it would absolutely kill my career. And even though I was kind of out of trying to get out of hard politics, that would poison any opportunities I would have within the Republican Party ever in the future, number one. And number two, I had young children. So I had two boys at the time that were two and four, I think. And so to try to kind of join a campaign at that point would be really disruptive. On the other hand, there was only like six weeks left until the general election. So it would be short lived. And so I, I decided very fast. And next thing I knew, in a day or two, I mean, I joined up and there was announcement kind of to the public that he would be making an announcement. And then it was announced it was me. And it was great and really overwhelming. And I was quickly kind of traveling around with the campaign full time, pretty much though we ended up for the last three and a half weeks, making Utah our main headquarters and spending most of our time there.
1: Yeah, the hope was sort of that you guys could capture the Utah electoral votes or throw Utah the other direction just to throw the whole election into the House.
0: Yeah, I mean, it was a quixotic mission, no doubt, but it was not totally implausible. It had not happened. But the the thought was at the time, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton were extremely close in polling. I mean, it really looked like a a coin toss, coin flip election but neither were very popular. And if we could win a state or two and no candidate received 270 electoral votes, then it goes to the House. And it would, we thought it would re-scramble the potential winner. But really, I mean, it would be unlikely in that event that Donald Trump could become the president, we thought, because he still had quite a bit of opposition in the Republican Party. I mean, he had there was a lot of reluctant support for him among kind of the who's who of Republicans and certainly among House members. And so that was... That was kind of the thinking. Uh, About a week and a half or so after I joined the campaign, we had a poll in Utah that had us leading in Utah
1: um,
0: and a couple others that showed us really neck and neck. So we did not end up there. I think there, what we learned is the viability threshold really matters. And so we had a higher expression of support than where people ultimately voted because a certain percentage of people who wanted to vote for us kind of went to vote and thought, well, there's no way they're going to win. So I don't want to throw that vote away and I need to vote for one or the others of the candidates. And of course, the Republican Party was making that argument. I mean, Mike Pence came to Utah. We kind of forced Mike Pence to come campaign to U- in Utah for Trump and basically rally the troops to say, you need to come home. You need to come home to the Republican Party, which was a direct target at our voters. Like, don't think about leaving home. You need to come home to where you belong in the Republican Party, and it was effective.
1: Even as a third party candidate, it's got to be a little heady to be picked to be a VP candidate and go through a campaign even for that few weeks. What did it feel like to you?
0: Well, it felt like being challenged at the highest levels of my ability every single day, which is personally one of the things I liked most about it. I learned what I was capable of and couldn't had like it was the only that could have tested me in that way. Obviously I think there would be things that would be even more difficult that might have tested me more, especially if you I was trying to do that kind of campaign for two years as opposed to less than two months. It was humbling, I think is the best way I can describe it in that there were communities of Utah's and then the other states we went to who were self-organizing events, you know, booking their local town halls or community centers to be able to have town hall meetings or rallies that we could come and speak to because they were taking very seriously their vote in the election. They were not satisfied with their options. Utah is generally a more conservative place, but they did not, you know, over relative to other states, take kindly to Donald Trump's crassness, to put it lightly. And voters, they wanted more options. And they saw us as this light, kind of positive light and opportunity. And we were these young candidates, Evan was 40 at the time and I was 35, and they were really inspired by that. And so people would come with, you know, there are many kids or you had like veterans, you know, who would come and speak at these events that they had risked their lives, fought and risked their lives for their country. And they just felt so discouraged by kind of the options they were facing in the presidential election and so grateful to us to bring another option. And people voting for the first time, students who said they weren't going to vote, but then we joined and they would. So they now are planning to vote. And that was very humbling to say, like, they're looking to us as their source of hope and optimism in this presidential election and to some level, hope and optimism in their country and in their country's values. I took that responsibility really seriously. It was many ways it was more like a Senate campaign level, I would say, and that like after every event. We would stand and we would do a photo line. We would take a photo with as many people as one and two. And believe me, standing in high heels, I learned for hours, was actually quite difficult. But I loved it. I mean, people would be in tears and they would thank me for doing it. And they knew, of course, that I had was leaving my own family behind. And it was this awesome responsibility and experience. And then at the same time, we had a shoestring team and staff. And so I had to do a lot. And I was the second dairy candidate. So the second priority for sure. I didn't have a lot of preparation. I had to write my own speeches for the most part. I mean, I had some some help, but talking points and preparation for the questions we would get in Q&A in town halls and not a lot of time to prep. So I really was grateful that I had spent all that time as a staff member, because if not for that, I would have been woefully unprepared. I mean, that was the only way I was able to do it. But I found that I was capable of a lot more than I may have thought. And I actually quite enjoyed being a candidate. I enjoyed it. It made me appreciate much more what it's like for the candidates I had worked for, that it's much harder, frankly, maybe than we give credit for. But at the same time, that you don't have to be necessarily super special to do it. I mean, I had this humble upbringing and here I was out there doing that. And I'm quite grateful for the experience uh, still to this day, even though it was disruptive in, in many ways. I'm just grateful for the opportunity
1: when i started this podcast which was after the the trump win in 2016 i wanted to interview the breadth of the coalition against him from the left far left to the never trump republicans and other pro-democracy forces and one of the people i interviewed back in 2019 i think was evan mcmullen who had I think with you, started Stand Up Republic, right? I liked him. He he clearly had energy and it felt like integrity and had located himself in a decent place. I don't, I don't know him personally, but tell me about continuing with him on a
0: project. Evan and I clicked quite well, which was nice. And obviously we were going through this really unique and difficult experience together. And, and truthfully, he treated it, as a partnership, from the point that I joined the race, I think he was quite grateful to have a partner in that endeavor because it is was so challenging, um, which was one of the unique parts about running. So, like I, a lot of times if you're running for office, you're going it alone. And but we would talk a lot in those last weeks before the election just about kind of what we had built because we did have quite a movement behind us, and considering um, like the amount that we spent per vote, which significantly lower than any other candidate, you know, for we punched well above our weight. We talk about what we want to do with that movement and kind of what it meant. And even if the expectation wasn't that Trump was going to win, in fact, the expectation was Trump was going to lose the general election. And so the thought was, there's an opportunity to kind of redirect the Republican Party or the conservative movement in a better direction, that if Trump lost, that would be a repudiation of Trumpism. Of course, that's not what happened. But we talked through different scenarios. And it was really important a couple of things that we agreed on that the country needs a new generation of leaders and that it would be a good thing to try to play a role in that and that we wanted to utilize the movement that we had built no matter what happened in the election itself. We wanted to utilize that movement in a positive way to defend democracy and to make kind of the core tenets of democracy something the public should be able to unite around and that it wouldn't just be a, the Democratic Party valuing equality, liberty and truth and justice, but that w- those values were things we would try to find common ground and and bring people together around common ground on on democracy issues. And so, when Trump won, it became even more important to do that from our perspective. And we very quickly decided to to launch an enterprise together, which was a, a nonprofit, both the C three and C four arm, to essentially unite Americans across political divides in defense of democracy. And we we did a number of things more of hard politics things, going after far-right, when I say going after trying to defeat far-right candidates in elections like Roy Moore, who ran in a special election in Alabama for Senate, and Steve King, the white nationalist congressman from Iowa. We did those things to great effect, as well as doing a lot of organizing and advocacy around the Russia investigation against Trump and many other things. And so we ended up working together for over three, three to four years after that election, building out that nonprofit, which no longer exists, but was kind of parlayed into similar work that lives on today.
1: It seems like you've been since that time and it's just very busy with all kinds of fellowships and now a startup. Can you summarize this, the other things you were doing before you started Citizen Data?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've done a number of things. Well, first of all, my 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 real policy is to say no to most things that I'm asked to do. And so that's what I try to do. But the few things that I have said yes to are being advisors or sitting on boards of nonprofits that are within kind of democracy building and democracy strengthening, where I feel like I can offer some unique perspective and guidance. And so I'm I'm doing that. I've also... Yes, done a couple of fellowships. So I did one at the University of Chicago in their democracy, you know, these democracy fellows in their School of Public Service, where I focused on the intersection of data and democracy. And I did that for a year while I was working in building citizen data. And now I'm currently a fellow at George Washington University, where I have a master's degree. The fellowship, though, is in the School of Media and Public Affairs. I graduated from the School of Political Management, but in the School of Media and Public Affairs, I essentially get to speak as a guest lecturer in class as well as in separate events. I don't have my own course. And I find that really rewarding. Most of my work is in my company. So I have a, a company that I started but with some investors. So Startup Capital, it's a, as I said, a social enterprise about four years ago now called Citizen Data, which grew out of the Stand Up Republic nonprofit work, where I recognize that obviously the Democratic kind of hard politics ecosystem and the Republican hard politics ecosystem have massive kind of infrastructure and capacity to do marketing. They have the data and the digital capacities that they really need and then some, but this new and emerging space of somewhat politically independent, but sometimes it's not really even about the political eye. It's more so we're learning just the cross-partisan, nonpartisan project of protecting and strengthening the core tenets of our democracy without politicizing them, there wasn't really a data and research capacity to serve those groups. And that's what we do at Citizen Data. So we do kind of sophisticated polling, and we also have our full, very robust and regularly building database on American voters, where we build unique you know, models for like targeting kind of democracy reformers and independence and that kind of thing. But our clientele, the groups that we serve are kind of the foremost nonpartisan nonprofits that are doing democracy protection and strengthening work. And these are groups most people wouldn't have heard of, but maybe people in politics like Protect Democracy, Center for Tech and Civic Life. These are pretty sizable nonprofits at this point. It doesn't make sense for them to have their own data capacity. And so that's what we are. And we serve all those clients. To
1: me, it sounds a bit like Catalyst. Uh, uh, that's right. On the left.
0: That's uh, exactly or, right. Yeah. We basically that's it's very similar to the Catalyst model, and in fact, one of our early advisors and mentors had helped kind of in the early days of getting Catalyst going and saw the impact it could have. So it is very much like that, but we're serving a, a different part of the market. How's that going? It's going well. It's leading edge in terms of the market itself and how much is that going to grow. We sought to, to kind of be the go-to provider for that market, and we are today. And the work is incredibly rewarding. So having heard my whole journey, I think for me, it's a culmination of everything that I have done in many ways. It brings in kind of obviously the political experience, understanding of the media, the tech, the digital side... Having built a company before, I'm obviously able to leverage that. At the same time, of it's kind of working on depolarization and, you know, depoliticizing some things that shouldn't be politicized. And that's been kind of core to the last kind of phase of my career. We do very little in hard politics, but we're have such an incredible impact on the political sphere. And so it feels very rewarding. For example, I think some of the work I'm most proud of right now is our data and insights are informing uh, a whole set of tools and guidance for the thousands of elections departments and election officials across the country who are relied upon to run a fair trusted and secure election it doesn't matter who's running that work is incredibly incredibly important I feel very good about that and so you're good we've, we've been growing year over year and and we'll continue to to grow obviously I wish we could be have even more you know, of an impact, which like that is more out of our hands. If if um, there was more of a market for a, what I would call, you know, a healthier politics and a healthier civic sphere.
1: How would you assess the state of the democracy ecosystem, the groups there? How does it feel like to you?
0: Well, it's maturing. So there is way more coalescing around, you know, we know what the problems are. We know what needs to be done there's less hand wringing. So there's more kind of knowledge, awareness. You know, the first step to fixing a problem is believing, understanding that there is a problem, right? And then what about that that you need to fix? I think it's matured quite a lot. I've seen it mature and I've hopefully been part of maturing it over the last five to six years. It's not, there's still so much, it, it needs more. I mean, it's underfunded and it's still a bit of a David and Goliath scenario, I think, where brilliant people, and the smart tools and, and connected in the right places, but going up against the political machine, particularly the tr- well, the, the Trump, Trump Inc. is no small task. And, and so I kind of have this two word mantra of what's needed in order to be more competitive and to be more successful, which is more better. We need more of it. So we need more people in this pro-democracy space and it needs to be better. And more effective
1: what's your level of optimism about the country given the threat of a return of trump and the the depth the which that has permeated your former party
0: i have a, a high level of pessimism about trump and that i think it'll be terrible if he's re-elected and will set the country back from a democracy perspective or democracy perspective quite a lot, I think he'll feel completely unchecked and unrestricted in terms of what he decides to do to try to solidify his power within the executive branch of the country and to make the executive branch even more powerful than it already is, while sort of disempowering Congress or really controlling Congress, as well as the Supreme Court and the judiciary. So I'm quite concerned about that. I think we know what he's going to do and it's not going to be good from a country perspective. I don't think we should, I don't want to like quiet the alarm because I think the alarm should be quite high, but I still have a lot of faith and optimism in the American people writ large that there's a commitment to a healthy respect for kind of the core tenets of democracy you know, living in a pluralistic country, living in a charitable country, living in one where we hold leaders accountable, truth and justice being really important. It's not that these things aren't under threat. They certainly are. But I still think that the overall civic health of the country is high enough that we can overcome what's ahead if Trump were to be elected. I mean, we'll have to. We won't really have a choice. It still has to be harnessed, and it requires good leaders' Taking action and robust action to oppose and push back and provide kind of a counterforce to Trumpism. But I have faith and optimism that we can do that without losing our democracy entirely. I, I think there'll be a ton of rebuilding and work that needs to happen. I'm not giving up on America and the ideas <laughs> that our country is built upon.
1: It feels to me like there needs to be a coalition of these pro-democracy people, however they identify politically independent or former Republican or whatever, with partisan Democrats to win. Do you have any suggestions about how we can facilitate that happening in time for this next election?
0: So there, I mean, there's a lot of things happening, some of which, you know, I can talk more in depth about, some that I can't. Like, there's quite a lot of organizing and coordination that is happening among the pro-democracy ecosystem. Again, like there's still a lot of work that needs to be done, it needs support, it needs funding, but I have a, a fairly high level of confidence that we're much more equipped than we were even in 2020, where there already was a good amount of organizing, which did couldn't prevent January 6th, but it did ensure that we had, we ultimately were able to have a certified election and a result, and we were able to ha- ultimately have a peaceful transfer of power. And so I feel much more confident that the you kind know, of defense apparatus, I would call it, is bigger, broader, more hardened, more coordinated, just much more equipped for what's to come potentially in 2024 and beyond uh, than it was two years ago or even four years ago. And so um, to me, that's key. It's that coordination. What I try to bring to it, in addition to just what we're doing at Citizen Data, is this big campaign, but that it needs to be large scale. And how do you run a large scale operation that's coordinated and kind of firing at all cylinders, which very much kind of going back to the beginning of this podcast, my presidential campaign experience really shapes my view on that. So it's one thing to have a $1 million effort, $1.5 million, which is actually what Evan and I's campaign ran on. It's another thing to be a hundred million dollar kind of apparatus that's going up against what'll probably be a multi billion dollar machine in Trump world. And so really getting organized to be able to do that at a at a high and serious level is, is critical. And you know, that's kind of what I'm part of and, and try to do my best to to play a role in making happen.
1: Does the Coke endorsement of Nikki Haley fit into that at all? And the and that Source of money in the process?
0: The Coke operation, I mean, fundamentally and they can speak for themselves, but their sort of guiding principles or what guides their activities, at least they, they would say, is a set of like beliefs and policies and vision for what they think should be in the country, which we can agree or disagree with, but like that's what they say is the foundation. And so their political work is really a way to realize that. And and so I don't want to suggest that and it's not fair to suggest that their endorsement is just based on like what's best for our kind of democracy writ large although it's hard to separate democracy from policy I mean it's it's all one thing they made a kind of a political calculation they're smart people and they're connected in a lot of places and I think it was certainly a part of their calculation of a you know I think they care that and this is some of the public so I'm not saying anything that's not public but They believe that there's a possibility of her winning that primary. And so they're coming in to support her thinking if they can escalate, improve that possibility, then they will do that. And that's what they decided to do. Obviously, in their perspective, she would be much better for what in in line with their view of the world and what should happen in the world than Donald Trump. So that's why they made that endorsement. I don't think she is viable. And even with their endorsement in the Republican primary, I think pretty much Trump is an inevitability but I think there is value in that endorsement for the broader project of democracy, because I think it's really important to have competition, first of all, and for people to to have ideological coherence where people within the Republican Party aren't... I think you end up voting for Trump and it just sort of solidifies that you think the things he's doing are okay. Um, If you vote for somebody else, like a Nikki Haley, then essentially you're aligning with what I would say is a more pro-democratic viewpoint. And so I think there's value in that. And then what does that mean for a general election? It means that if those things were important to you in a primary, well, you're already starting from a foundation for those with those voters that they care about those things enough to ha- have those things inform their decision in a general election. And it's much harder than to make that leap from a Nikki Haley in a primary to Trump in a general election. It's not to say it won't happen, but it's harder. And so I, I think that endorsement is really, really important. It's interesting that in polling, and obviously Different polls say different things, but there are some polls that show that she would do much better in a general election against Joe Biden, which I think is an argument the Kochs are making also to Republicans who care about getting a Republican elected. But I actually think that that's a sign that the public writ large is is like a rejection of Donald Trump. The process may be that he ends up winning the primary, and he may end up winning the general election. But I think it's quite interesting that of If you do kind of a Haley-Biden matchup or a Trump-Biden matchup, then in most cases, Haley's going to do better than Trump and and she would would get more support than Trump against Joe Biden, which I think just says some interesting things about the country.
1: If it ends up being Trump against Biden, as seems most likely, do you think there's an opportunity for substantial Republican movement to Biden?
0: Uh, Substantial. It depends how you categorize substantial
1: big funders, uh, elites, you know, I see, I see. Um, hmm. I mean, it doesn't right now feel like it, but you, when you hear like Mitt Romney talking about his conversations behind the scenes, they seem to reveal a wildly different view on Trump in private than people are forced to take in public.
0: Well, that's the part of the problem. I, yeah. mean,
1: I mean, people running on fear. have
0: said a lot of different things in private than they do in public. You know, when Evan and I would go to the Hill after our run in 2016, when we were building Santa Republican, we'd go to Capitol Hill and we'd have staffers, Republican staffers and members who were giving us high fives and thumbs up essentially behind their back when in public they were praising Donald Trump. So that's always been the problem. I mean, the the disconnect between the private view and the public view among leading elite Republicans. I think there could be some, but I think the problem is that Trump's hold on the Republican base is so strong that anyone who kind of goes against Trump, it's like they're suddenly automatically a Democrat. Like George Bush or Mitt Romney at this point coming out against Trump, it's it's already really baked into the calculations that a lot of Republicans
1: They become apostates.
0: Yeah, that's that. become apostates. It doesn't mean there's no value. I think like what Liz Cheney is doing and has done, there's value. There's still value in doing it. You have enough of of a chorus coming out against them that it does cause for voters who are paying attention them to think like, hmm, like to question. You want them to question at least. If people are already planning to vote for Trump, getting them to a place where they're at least open to questioning whether that is the right thing that's a win. That's the first step you need to persuade them not to vote for him. So there's still value in it. I would not count on a big move towards Biden, at least publicly. It doesn't mean there might not be things that happen behind the scenes that are important. I think the challenge that we really have, and this isn't like saying anything people don't already know, but I'll say it anyway, is that is Biden's weakness as a candidate, as the Democratic nominee. It's very difficult for people to like, they can make an anti-Trump argument. And I, you know, I certainly appreciate a lot of the things that Biden's done, but his weaknesses, which a lot kind of come down to his age and the economy and popularity and like things he really, a lot of things he can't control, frankly, that's just a tough sell. It makes it a tougher sell than if you had a stronger democratic candidate in that seat. I mean, what he has going for him, obviously, and besides. He was already won one general election is that he's the sitting president and has generally been a likable guy. But it's gonna be really, really difficult. It's difficult to make that sell. I, I I don't so I would not expect, going back to the original question, a robust movement of Republicans for Biden at least publicly. I still think that there's opportunities among the electorate again, and I think this Nikki Haley, doing well in the primary is helpful, there's an opportunity to move those people to Biden in a general election.
1: With your experience on the third party ticket in 2016, third party seems like it might push the election one way or another in 2024. Also, there's so many different things uh, out there from no labels to Kennedy and beyond. How do you view that aspect of things?
0: It's. I'm sort of a crisis of conscience on the no labels third party effort. Uh, on one hand, I believe strongly from a principles perspective in political competition, and that we are a probably six party country in a two party system. And I like and support a lot of efforts in states, and we have in my company to reform the system to open up the door to more political competition and to more parties to compete. I think it's a good thing in a vacuum. In the presidential election context, and given my concerns about Donald Trump, studying what's happening and the potential impact of the no labels effort, I think that it's highly, highly likely that it would just improve Donald Trump's chances of of winning the presidency again. And from that perspective, I don't support it. I do think it's dependent somewhat on the candidate, but any candidates that they're talking about, I think it would cause that what I just said, it would actually take away from Joe Biden's support and in that way help Donald Trump. And so it is like, in theory, something that I support and I support kind of those efforts in states. Um, but given the stakes in this upcoming election, I'm quite wary of it.
1: Mindy, is there something I should have asked you that I didn't?
0: We covered a lot of ground. We've covered most of it. No, I don't think so. Good.
1: Well, it's it's been really an honor to catch up with you and Hear your perspective, and I appreciate the work you're doing out there in the pro democracy space. Keep at it. Anything else you want to say?
0: Have a great holiday. I hope you get a good break. Thanks for having me on. It's good to catch up.
1: That was Mindy Finn. Mindy is at Citizendata.com.